you have your Bibles, I invite you to be turning to the book of Acts in the second chapter and just mark that place, if you would. It'll be a little while before we actually turn there and begin to look at some things that are fundamental truths of the faith. But I appreciate you being here this evening, and I'm glad to be here and glad for the opportunity to share with you the word as we'll look at it this evening, and pray that it will be beneficial to all of us. Before we actually get into looking at some of the fundamental truths of the faith, I want to give you the name of the sermon and tell you a little bit about why I think it's an important subject and why it's worthy of our attention this evening. I'm going to entitle the lesson, My Faith, The Faith. Most of us claim to be people of faith. Many of the people that we come in contact with each day also profess to be people of faith. But here's the question that I would ask each of us. Is my faith the same as the faith? If we have faith, it means we believe in something, we trust in something. And if we have faith, that faith can be precious. I've preached in times past on the value of faith and named, I think, nine or ten things that faith does for us. But just for the moment, let me give you two things that I think suggest the value of faith and how precious faith can be. The first thing is Hebrews, the 11th chapter, verse 6, tells us that without faith, it's impossible for us to please God. Without faith, we won't stand before God in the day of judgment and hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joys of heaven. Rather, we would hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you. And the second thing about faith is that faith can save. Most of us are familiar with Ephesians, the second chapter, and how that uh, Paul writes and talks about how that uh, by grace we're saved through faith, he says. And so faith can save us. But let me suggest to you that not all faith are, is equal, and not all faith is precious faith. There are some faith that really is damnable, and some that are vain. We see that people believe things and trust in things that really aren't trustworthy, that aren't really what we need to put our faith in. For instance, why did Eve partake of the fruit that was forbidden? We can go back and read Genesis, the third chapter, and we would see uh, Satan coming and tempting her and focus her attention on it and, and telling things that weren't true about that tree or, or what would happen if she did eat of the tree uh, that was forbidden. But she was deceived. And First Timothy, the second chapter, in verse 14, just says the woman was deceived. She believed Satan. And we know from other places that Satan's a liar, that you can't really put your faith in things that Satan said. And that the promises that he makes are not to be believed, and they 
are shy of the things that he really promises us. They're empty and they're vain, not worthy of our faith. If our faith is going to be precious, and Peter talks about in 2 Peter 1 that we can have this light, precious faith. If our faith is going to be precious, then it will be the same as the faith, the saving faith. And that must be our faith. But let me also remind you that faith is personal. And I mean by that, no one can believe for me, nor can I believe for someone else. It's going to be me that stands before God in judgment, and I will answer according to my faith, the faith that I have. I won't answer according to your faith, and you won't answer according to my faith. You can't be saved on my faith. I can't be saved on your faith. Yet at the same time, we can share our faith with others. We can help them believe in the faith. And we can do so by giving them the truth and giving them reasons for the things that we believe. We can cite scriptures. Remember Acts 17 and 11, Paul talks about, or is quoted by Luke as saying that he said, search the things that you hear and see if they are according to the scriptures. And we can point out to people what the scriptures teach. And we can reason with people according to the scriptures. When you look at Acts 17 and verse 2, it tells us that Paul came to a place and he reasoned with these people about the scriptures. He was showing them that what he was saying is logical and believable. And the result of that in verse 11 was that many of them believed. And we can share our faith. We can tell people why we believe something and, and what we believe and, and try and impress upon them the reasonableness of this faith that we have so that they can put their faith in it and trust in this and know that it will come to pass. Sharing our faith can help us to examine ourselves to see if we're even in the faith. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, in verse 5, and said, examine yourselves and see whether you're in the faith. It implies that we can get out of the faith or that we might be walking in some way that is out of the faith. And so if we share our faith, we can examine our faith, and somebody can examine our faith, and, and we can maybe come to a better understanding of God's Word. We can perhaps be strengthened in our faith. You look in the book of Acts in the 16th chapter in verse 5, and it talks about the churches being strengthened in their faith. Well, we can share our faith and talk about our faith, and through that we can be strengthened in faith. And I like the statement that is made in the book of Acts in the 18th chapter, verse 26, when uh, Apollos, and, or not Apollos, but Aquilus and Apollos, or Ananias and Aquilus, it still doesn't sound right. Anyway, they were talking to Apollos on that occasion, and they were uh, trying to show him more accurately the Word of God. And I like that approach. That is not necessarily me standing up and condemning somebody or them condemning me, but it's us sitting there and studying the Scriptures and sharing our faith in hope that both of us maybe can come to understand the way of the Lord even more accurately and have a better understanding. We can study and share and maybe come to the unity of faith. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, in verse 5, Paul talks about 
how that there's one faith. There's a unity of faith. And he would go on and talk about the apostles and prophets and how that they're ministering. And, and the hope is that all of us can come to this unity of faith. But we need to do that or need to share our faith and talk about our faith in order to get to that point. I will tell you that this really came about as I thought about my stewardship of the gospel and I thought about people that I, I really wanted to, to share the gospel with, but I, I really never did. And maybe starting with the idea of writing an article and just share with them this faith and how others may appreciate a sharing of the faith, not in an effort to condemn but in an effort just to share faith and, and to examine and see whether or not we're in the faith and try and build up our faith. And so with that in mind, turn, if you would, to the book of Acts in the second chapter, and I want to talk with you about some of the very fundamentals of the faith. And if you're familiar with Acts 2, you know that it's the first gospel sermon after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ that he had told his apostles to wait there in Jerusalem till the Spirit fell upon them. And the Spirit fell upon them in Acts 2, and it did two things, really. It showed the people that they were, they were real apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, that what they were saying were, was true and that they were approved of God. He wouldn't send the Spirit on somebody that was not approved of him. And it was them telling them things that Jesus wanted them to hear. You may remember that in the book of John in the 16th chapter, in verses 5 through 15, Jesus was with his apostles and he said, I'm going to leave you, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I will send you the Spirit. And he tells them the Spirit would deliver them or give them the truth, the things that he wanted them to say. And so in Acts 2, you have the Spirit falling on the apostles and signifying to anybody that was there and watching it that this was God-approved message. And it showed you also that the Spirit was leading them and guiding them. And so what they were saying was of necessity truth. The Holy Spirit is not going to lead somebody in error and tell them things that are not true. So this is something that we can put our faith in. This is something we know to be true. This is something that, that will prove to be uh, worthy of our putting our faith into, and it is occasion where they're talking about the salvation of man. Look, if you would, for just a moment to the book of Acts in the second chapter in verse uh, 21. If you'll look down, first of all, go back a little up, if you would, to verse 16. And Peter says, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he quotes from the prophet Joel, and he's quoting from what we would know as Joel 2 and toward the end of the chapter. He says, it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your, men, your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before that coming of great and awesome day of the Lord. 
Now notice particularly, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the point of the, the thing, or the passage, that there is a time of salvation coming. And the next thing, and the, what Peter says is, this is that that the prophet Joel spoke in verse 16. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And so what Peter is saying is, these are the words of salvation that I'm about to tell you. That it was prophesied that God would send his spirit, people would speak, and, and the word of, of God would be spoken, and those that call on the name of the Lord should be saved. And Peter says, this is what we're talking about. And so then he goes on and he begins to tell us what he wants us to know. And the first thing that he, he points out is that Jesus of Nazareth, a man that attested by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did uh, through him and in your midst as you yourselves also know him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put him to death whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. I want you to drop down if you would for just a moment to Verse 36, where Peter says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. That's the first thing that I want you to know as we talk about the faith. That that the faith includes Jesus as being Christ and Lord. He is the Son of God. I've talked a lot about the resurrection, and I point out that if I can show somebody that Jesus was raised from the dead, then I've just shown you that he is the Son of God. And if I've shown you that he is the Son of God, of necessity I've shown you that God exists. can't be a Son of God without there being a God. There has to be one like God in order for there to be God. Or for, for there to be one like God, there has to be a God. And so he says, Jesus is Lord and Christ. And he gives two things to show us that's the truth. He says, look at the miracles that he did. You may remember that in the book of John in the 30th or 20th chapter in verse 30, that John writes and he talks about all of the miracles that Jesus did. And he says that Jesus did these so that we might know that he is the Christ. And so that's what Peter appeals to. He shows and talks about the miracles, and these people had seen Jesus' miracles. He says, you've seen the miracles. And he says, this shows you that Jesus is the Christ. And then the other thing that he points to in the passage that shows that Jesus is the Christ is that he was crucified and buried and raised from the dead. And you might remember that in the book of Matthew that Jesus was asked by some one time what was the sign of his coming. and, and that he was who he said he was. And he pointed out that like Jonah was in uh, the ocean and in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, that the Son of Man would be in the earth for three days and three nights. And that's what he was. He was crucified and then buried and stayed there till the third day, and then he was raised from the dead. And so this is the sign that he was indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. I've said before, if I could get across any point to an audience, I would get across that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he's Lord. 
And if I could do that, then that settles the question. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Savior. He is the only Savior. He's the only one we can look to to save us. And he is our Lord. He is our Master. And so whatever it is that he tells us to do, that we should do. But before we ever put our trust in Jesus and believe that he is Christ, that he is Lord, or before we say, okay, I'm going to commit myself totally unto the Lord Jesus because he is my Lord, we need to have faith in him. And the way that faith comes, Peter says, is by knowing that he was a man who, or a person who worked miracles. God would not have given him those powers and and been with him and worked those miracles if he wasn't who he was saying that he was, that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God and Lord. And he wouldn't have given him the power and, and the, the, the place that he did if he was not Lord. And so it's something that is worthy of our faith. We can put our trust in Jesus as Lord and Christ. And that's the very foundation of the faith. You know, the writer Paul in Galatians talked about that the law, talking about the law of Moses, was given to bring us unto this time of we recognize that Jesus was Lord in Christ. And Jesus lived under the law and kept the law and then put the law to the end, and he became the Lord and the Christ. And now it's him that we look to as our Savior and as the one that will be our master. When you look again at the book of Acts in the second chapter, when Paul or when Peter has really convinced these people that Jesus is Lord in Christ, or a number of them, and there is no doubt that he had convinced them. You remember uh, in verse 36, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, or this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And he says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? So they're convinced that Jesus is Lord in Christ. And we should be convinced. And we should make our faith based on Jesus as Lord in Christ. But then when they've cried out, what shall we do? Peter tells them in verse 38, uh, repent and every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises unto you, to your children, to all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call. So here's what we need to do. We're convinced, supposedly, now that Jesus is Lord in Christ and so in our hearts, if not already, we should be crying out, so what should I do? And Peter says, here's what you need to do. You need to repent, and you need to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Repentance means to turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan and the power of God. In the book of Acts in the 26th chapter, in verse 18, uh, Paul is talking about his conversion, and he talks about God tells him, this is my mission for you, that I'm going to send you forth to preach, and, and what you're going to do is you're going to change people or call people out of darkness into the light and out of the power of Satan into the power of God. And that's basically what repentance is. Repentance is a turning from something into something. And if you look at those passages, what you're doing, you're turning from darkness and from Satan 
unto light and unto God. And if Jesus is Lord in Christ, then why wouldn't we turn from darkness and, and Satan unto Jesus or unto God? And so that's what Peter's trying to get them to do. And then the second thing, he says, and that you need to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And so there's something else. You're baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. So your sins will be gone. It's sin that has tainted us. Uh, it's sin that has separated us from God. Isaiah talks about, Behold, his hand is not short, that it cannot save, but your sins have separated between you and God. Or Romans the 6th chapter in verse 23, when he says, the, the wages of sin is death. We sin, and therefore we are, are condemned to death. And now he's saying, but you can change that. You can repent, you can say, I'm stopped sinning, and turning from darkness, and turning from Satan, turning unto the light, and unto God, and then secondly, then he says you can be baptized, calling on the name of the Lord, and you can be washed of your sins, or your sins will be remitted, all your sins will be gone. You'll not stand before God in judgment and have to face those sins again. They will be gone and forgiven he said. Now, if I'm going to be a part of the faith, if my faith is going to be the same as the faith, then I'm going to have to repent of my sins, and I'm going to have to be baptized in the name of the Lord for the, for the remission of my sins. I know there are a lot of people that don't believe that those things are necessary, but if my faith is going to be the same as the faith, then I've got to do that. And when I'm baptized, when I repent and am baptized, my life will show that I've changed. You look at uh, the book of Ephesians, for instance, and Peter, or rather Paul, talks about salvation in the first three chapters, talking about how wonderful the blessings are that we have in Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 4, though, he says, now you need to walk worthy of the vocation wherein you're called. You've been called by Christ to come out of the world and out of darkness, so now you need to walk a different kind of path. And he goes on in Ephesians, the fourth chapter and fifth chapter and part of the sixth chapter, in telling us in very specific detail some of the things that we must do now that we have put away darkness and put away Satan and now are living for God and living for Christ. For instance, in Ephesians 4, he talks about we don't lie anymore. He talks about husbands and wives and talks about how they have to love one another. He talks about uh, other things that we ought not to have, envy and jealousy, and how that we ought to have love and forgiveness and all of those things. And that's a part of the faith. It's a part of the faith as much as repentance means, and baptism means we walk a new life. You see in the book of Romans in the sixth chapter, Incidentally, you'll see him talking about in Romans 5 how that we're saved by faith. And then in chapter 6, he says, don't you know as many of you as were baptized in Christ were are baptized, were baptized into Christ, and you're dead to sin? And just notice how that he knew that everyone that had been baptized because of the, or everyone that had the faith, he knew they'd been baptized. Because the faith includes repentance and baptism in the name of Jesus. 
And he says, now if you've been baptized, you should have died to sin. And now you should be alive unto righteousness and holiness. And so that's a part of the faith. And if my faith is going to be precious, and if my faith is a saving faith, it's going to match the, the faith. And I'm going to have repented of my sins, and I'm going to have been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm going to change from that old person that I was to a new person that lives in, in holiness and seeks righteousness in the sight of God. And that's the faith. And my faith needs to be like that. But look further, if you would, in the book of Acts in the second chapter. Drop down, if you would, to verse 47. And the writer tells us that these people that had been baptized and repented and been baptized, they, they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And so now we learn something about the church. And we learn that those that are saved are added to the church. And that the Lord does the adding. I don't do it. You don't do it. I just repent of my sins and I'm baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, he adds me to the church. Question, which church did he add him to? Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Episcopalian? I sat in a home one time in Cordell, Georgia, talking with a lady, and we went over Acts 2, and we got to this point. And I asked her, I said, which church did, did he add them to? And she looked and thought for a minute, and she said, those things weren't around, were they? I said, no, ma'am, they weren't. It was just whoever it was that believed in the Jesus and repented of their sins, were baptized so as to be saved, then they were added to the church. And he only had the one church. And when he brought the Gentiles in, he added them to that one church. It's always whoever is saved is added to the church. We read in Ephesians, the first chapter, how that... Uh, there is one church. And if we're going to have the faith, and if my faith is going to line up with the faith, then I'm going to uphold the idea that God has one church and that it's the body of Christ and that anyone who it, it conducts themselves so as to be saved, they're going to be added to the church. Now, we need to be clear that the Bible does speak of Churches pool sometimes. In fact, if you wanted to look over to the book of Acts in the ninth chapter in verse one, you'd you'd see a passage that speaks of church pool, and and chapter fifteen and verse forty one, you read about the churches being strengthened through faith. Romans sixteen sixteen, the churches of Christ greet you. But let me suggest to you that those were not different denominations wearing different names to distinguish themselves from other denominations that taught different doctrines. It was simply referring to the saved in given locality. We read about the church of God at Corinth, or we read about the seven churches of Asia. It's those people that are saved in a given locality. And all a part of the Lord's church, but the saved in different localities and that was the churches that we read about. When Paul preached, he tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians in the 4th chapter and verse 17, 
He preached the same thing in all the churches. He didn't preach one thing at the church at Corinth and then go preach something totally different in, to the church at Thessalonia so that they were at odds with one another. One of them believing one thing and the other one something else and then Galatia believing something else even further different. He preached the same thing in all of them. There wasn't strife and division from the fact that he had preached different things or that they just believed different things as the Lord had given them. And when you think about the apostles and what John or what Jesus said about them or said to them in John the 16th chapter, he said, I'm going to send you the Spirit and he will guide you into all the truth. And you will tell them what I want them to say or what I want you to say. Well, Jesus wasn't teaching one thing and something different to another church that contradicted that. He was teaching the same thing in all the churches the apostles were. And so there's that one church that when somebody is saved, the Lord adds them. And then those saved are in different localities and, and they make up the churches. Those saved people make up churches in those given localities. But one church, from the standpoint of the Lord, has one church. And my point is, if we're going to have the faith, if my faith is going to match the faith, then I'm going to have to accept the idea and embrace the idea that God has one church, that it's the church of the Lord, the church of God, the church that belongs to him, that he promised, that he built and purchased with his blood. And I'm going to have to be content with that and put my trust in that one church and that the Lord is going to add me to the church. I want to suggest to you that we've talked about some very basic fundamental truths of the faith as given to us in the book of Acts in the second chapter. And I've done that because that's where the gospel started, being preached after the death and burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's a confined scripture, so you can look at it and study it and, and understand it, I think, without any problem. But let me tell you that there is not a passage in Acts 2 that we've talked about that contradicts another statement in the New Testament that's given as truth. Nor is there a statement anywhere else in the New Testament that we come back and contradict what we've already said are the truths that we need to believe in from Acts 2. You're not going to find another place in the New Testament that that tells us that repentance isn't necessary, or that baptism isn't necessary. You're not going to find another passage that's going to suggest that the Lord has a church for the Jews and a different church for the Gentiles, and then one maybe for somebody that, that doesn't want to be a part of either one of those. All of the passages are going to be in agreement because this is one gospel that has come from one God through the apostles and, and the preachers that were inspired by the scriptures or inspired by the Holy Spirit and has given us these things. And now we're going to have to accept these things in order to be and accept the faith and for my faith to be the same as the faith. And I need my faith to be the faith if I expect to have that to save me and to please God. Having said that, I want to tell you that 
you will find the words, the faith, in the New Testament about 39 times in 39 verses. Now, the faith includes much more than those 39 verses. It includes all of the New Testament. But those 39 passages that talk about the faith, ones that are talking about the faith in the sense that we are, there's a couple of them that, that are talking about maybe somebody's individual faith. I remember one in Romans, the fourth chapter, that talks about the faith of Abraham, uh, not talking about the New Testament faith at that time, same faith in God, but, but not based on New Testament doctrine, so forth. But you can thumb through those 39 passages and you can find some important facts about the faith that we need to uphold. And, and it's evident that some people get off from the faith and do things different than what the faith teach. Let me just give you three things to think about. Salvation through faith is a salvation through grace. Some people want to, to accept or to suggest that it's all grace and faith has nothing to do with it. But salvation through faith is salvation through grace. Uh, we mentioned it earlier, Ephesians 2 and verse 8, where Paul said, For by grace you're saved through faith. And that's the process. We're saved, and it's by grace. We don't deserve it, but we get and have salvation through faith. Uh, look at Romans, the third chapter, for a moment, if you would, and look at verse 23. At Romans 3 and verse 23, Paul tells us, For we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we all have sinned. Remember, the wages of sin is death. So if we just stop right there, we're dead. We're, we're lost. But he goes on to say, being justified freely by his grace. So even though we have sinned and we don't deserve heaven, he says, yet I will justify you. I'll proclaim you to be right in my sight and innocent in my sight through grace. But he doesn't stop there. He says, through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. So we're saved by grace through redemption in Jesus Christ. And just go back to Ephesians. Redemption is the forgiveness of sins in whom we have redemption. He says, comma, the forgiveness of sins. So we're saved by grace through redemption or through forgiveness of sins by the blood of Jesus Christ through faith because we believe in Jesus as the Christ. And so far from being a salvation by faith and separated from grace, or if we say we're saved by faith, we're, we're saying we're not saved by grace, they're the same. When you talk about salvation by faith, you're talking about salvation by grace. In fact, he would go on and he would illustrate it in chapter 4 of Romans with Abraham, saying that Abraham didn't earn his promise or earn the promise by his works, but rather God imputed his righteousness to him because of his faith. And then he goes on to say, that's, that's the way we are. We are not innocent of all sin, 
but he imputes us as righteous because of our faith. He didn't impute the righteousness of Christ to us, as some people think, and where he never sees us. We're always sinners, and Christ is just there for us as representative. We are made righteous through the forgiveness of sin, and he imputes righteousness unto us by faith. He counts us as righteous not because we have kept the law or kept every commandment, but because of our faith, that we have the faith. A second thing, faith does not exclude obedience. One of the things you see sometimes is that people just think, well, if I'm saved by grace or by faith, then that just rules out obedience. Let me show you that's not true. Go back a minute for the book of Acts in the second chapter, and and you remember that Peter has preached Jesus as Lord in Christ, and they cry out, what shall we do? And may I point out to you that what Peter didn't say is, oh, you can't do anything? Peter told them exactly what they needed to do. He says, you need to repent, and you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And so he tells them something they need to do. And in verse 38, we find that uh, he tells them that. And then in verse 41, those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. He not only told them what to do, but they did it. They obeyed. Look over, if you would, to the book of Acts in the 6th chapter in verse 7. Acts 6 and verse 7. And the scripture says, the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. You can obey the faith. And when you look at passages like the book of Hebrews in the 11th chapter where the writer is talking a great deal about faith, just, just notice what it says about faith in these passages. Look over to Hebrews, the 11th chapter. Look at verse 4. By faith, Abraham offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Abel is obeying God, and the reason he's obeying him is because of faith. He believes what God says. Verse 7, by faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of righteousness. He built that ark. He obeyed God. God told him, you go build the ark, and it's going to start raining, so build the ark. And he built the ark. He obeyed because of his faith. He had faith that it was going to rain, even though he would not seen rain uh, flood the world before. Because God said that it would, he did what God said do. And then you have Abraham uh, a little bit further down, talking about by faith, uh, he dwelt in the land of promise, the foreign land. And then it goes on to talk about uh, by faith, verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called. God called him. He said, Abraham, you go into this land that you haven't seen, and I'm going to give you an inheritance. And Abraham obeyed him because he believed what God said. And so also us. He says, if you repent and are baptized, then you'll have remission of sins. I'm going to obey him because I believe in him. But I have to believe him and obey him in order to receive those promises. 
You look at the book of James in the second chapter, and James is writing to Christians, but he makes it plain that faith and works aren't separate. He says in John or James 2 in verse 10, uh, excuse me, verse 14, he says, What does it profit, my brother, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Look down to, to verse 20. He says, But you are, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And then he uses Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? This is how he showed his faith. And he talks on that same time about Rahab, and he talks about how that we're justified by works, not by faith only. doesn't say faith isn't important, but it doesn't say you're saved by faith only on that occasion. And so there, we understand that faith includes grace, and to be saved by faith means we're being saved by grace, and to be saved by faith means obedience and that we have to obey in order to be saved by faith. But then the last thing I want you to notice also is that faith can be denied, and it can be lost. Um, think with me for a moment, if you would, to in the book of Acts, in the 24th chapter, and Paul is standing before Felix at this time, and he preaches to him, and reason with him righteousness and judgment and self-control and and. He preaches hard enough that Felix is trembling. He's fearful. And yet he walked away. Saying some more convenient time, I'll call upon you. But as far as we know, he never did. And it tells us he was hoping he could get some money out of it some way because of Paul. And so we can deny the faith. And we need to be careful. Rather than denying the faith, we need to accept the faith, and we need to continue in the faith. In Colossians, the first chapter, verse 23, Paul writes, and he says, continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast. And then he would say, and not uh, be moved away from the hope of the gospel. Those words wouldn't mean anything if we couldn't leave our faith, or if we couldn't move away from the hope. They tell us we have to continue in the faith in order to, to achieve and to have the prize in the end. And Paul would write in Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 saying, Some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Don't ever deny the faith. Don't deny the faith as it is and depart from the faith. It's through faith we're saved. The faith. And if my faith matches up with the faith, then my faith is a saving faith by the grace of God. But I have to have the faith. And I can't have my own faith that, that just whatever I want is going to have to be what God wants. A number of years ago, there was a commercial I heard on the radio one day as I was driving, riding around town or in town, and I don't really remember who it was from. I, I tend to think if it wasn't an insurance company, it would certainly work for an insurance company. It said, if you knew you were wrong, when would you want to be made right? Would you want it to be after some disaster came and destroyed your house that you finally realized, hey, my house didn't really cover what I thought I had, I don't have? Or if you're driving and you, you learn after the wreck that, your insurance wasn't covering as much as you thought that it did? When do you really want to know 
how good your insurance is. And when do you want to know if your faith is the faith? Now's the time to, to find out if my faith is the faith. And the way you do it is by looking at the scriptures and comparing your faith, what you believe to the scriptures, and making sure you're doing and accepting what the scripture says. That's the faith. If you're here this evening and haven't done so, then why not surrender to the faith and have faith? Uh, you can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Those people at Pentecost heard. They before thought that he was somebody that was a liar and a lunatic or something like that, but they listened to Peter and they said, he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. What shall we do? Maybe you've heard enough and you you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and we've already told you what to do. Repent, be baptized. Rise up to walk in newness of life and then continue in that faith. That's the way that we get saving faith. You're subject to the invitation in any way and we can assist you. We invite you to come as together we stand and sing.